Uh, well, I, I mentioned uh, the end of last week, I wanted to spend some more time this week talking about the ideas of uh, deconstructionism and uh, specifically uh, those things that came out of the writings of uh, Jacques Derrida, who's the French uh, philosopher uh, who was very prominent in postmodern thought altogether, but specifically the idea of deconstructionism and what that means, particularly related to, uh, to language and how we use language and how we read texts. And obviously, uh, that becomes very important right out of the gate as we think about the church and how we think about the scriptures. Uh, if, we, uh, if we start to question how it is that we go about reading texts, um, very quickly you get to a place where your reading of the text um, becomes more about you than it does about the author and what was intended from what they wrote. So uh, we'll start there. If we have time, we'll also get into um, some discussions about architecture and art as well, also very important uh, in this uh, conversation. So uh, I mentioned... Uh, Jacques Derrida. He is the one who formulated the idea of deconstructionism, and this is what you would consider maybe a sub-discipline of postmodernism. So you have the, the big idea, and then you have these ideas that sort of fall out under it. Um, now, the primary goal is, in his words, here's what he said, is, is to not naturalize what isn't natural, to not assume that what is conditioned by history, institutions, or society is natural. So in other words, if something isn't happening or occurring in nature already without any human intervention, then we shouldn't just assume that that's the way that it is. So, um, well, well, we'll talk about exactly how that will play out. It may sound, uh, it, that may sound okay up front, but you start to see uh, some problems very quickly as we walk down that road. Yes, of course, we would say, if, uh, if it's not a tree that naturally grows out of the ground, but it's something like a building or something like an institution, uh, then maybe our assumption up front shouldn't be, well, that's just a natural occurrence. If you're going to build a building, that's naturally how it would go. Or if you're going to start an institution, then that's naturally how that's going to take place. We need to question all of these things. We need to question whether or not this is reality. And it was aiming to not take for granted that something was true because it was said to be true historically. That's really what we're getting at. Just because something has always said, been said to be true, we need to question whether or not that is accurate. And so what ends up happening is that you continue to ask these questions and the laws and rules of a text uh, can never... Uh, can never be confined uh, because things start to uh, be determined now based on context of the culture and beyond that they become defined by a person's uh, how, how does something make me feel and so my feelings become a part of the conversation and so eventually what happens is looking at anything is not the question of what does this mean, but rather what does this mean to me? And when you, when you start to mess with that question, what does this mean, or what is this, or, and you turn that to what is this to me, 
you begin, uh, you begin down a road where everything is uh, in the eye of the beholder as opposed to the objective reality. Um, Derrida's most well-known pronouncement was that there is no outside text. In other words, it was a rejection of the idea that things have a straightforward meaning. Everything was sort of this complex thing that you had to uh, sort of decipher. And he said there are only contexts without any center of absolute anchoring. And so every sign, linguistic or non-linguistic, spoken or written, is... uh, if you put it between quotation marks, it can break with every given context. This was a quote from him. So let me explain what he's saying. He's saying that when we use the symbols that are so often associated or understood to be English letters, we call those symbols, which they are, when those are written down and we use the symbols that we call C-O-W, we are, uh, what the result of that is, is we now have a, uh, a word that we pronounce as cow. And when we associate that, we associate that with a, a physical cow. However, he says that only really takes place in a certain context. Now, if you can identify a context outside of seeing a physical cow and calling it a cow and determining that we use that word in another way. Um, I can think of one other way, but it's still sort of referencing uh, the physical animal, I think. Um, But if an English speaker says cow to a German speaker, there's going to be a disconnect. And so the idea, and we would agree with this, is that context must be associated with symbols. So if I say, if I write C-O-W and someone who doesn't recognize those symbols say they only speak Mandarin, well, Mandarin Chinese symbols, as you've seen, are very different from the symbols we use in terms of our language. So if we wrote C-O-W, they wouldn't understand what that is or what that means in the same way that if they, whatever symbol they use to identify a cow wouldn't make sense to us. Some hipster probably has it tattooed on their arm and they think it means rain. It actually means cow because they just don't know. Um, (laughs) So this makes sense, right? This idea that symbols identify something and unless you understand what those symbols are in its proper context... Uh, then you're not going to understand what it relates to. Okay, all fine and good. And so the word is really used as a stand-in for reality. It's only a citation. But what Derrida is saying is, well, we could take that a step further, though, and we can put quotation marks around that in our form of language use. And when we do that the word can break with every given context. And so, what does that mean? That means that I can start to apply this combination of symbols to form what I call a word to any other context depending on how I want to use it. In other words, I can determine that in my context for my purposes that this thing that all of you call chair, I call cow. 
But I call it that with quotation marks around it, which means that it's, you know, it's a cow. Right? That's the, this, this idea that we often, we, you ever talk to people and it's kind of this. Uh, Saturday Night Live used to have a skit uh, with Chris Farley and everything he said was this. Uh, because I didn't want you to really have the full meaning of exactly what I'm saying. Right? Um, <laughs> it's that sort of thing. I... I use this, which means I can get away with saying anything I want to say about anything. And in the end, when you challenge me on those thoughts, what do I get to tell you in return? If someone's, you know, not very crafty, they'll just say, well, that's not, that's not my truth, that's yours or whatever else. But really what ends up happening, and you hear this a lot, especially in, uh, in political speak, and you certainly hear this even in theological circles, well, that's not, you're not understanding what I'm saying. You don't, you don't re, you're not really grasping what I mean by this. Uh, about, oh, 15 years ago now, there's a theologian um, by the name of N.T. Wright, and he was, he was writing all these things about his ideas of justification. And uh, he was being challenged by many people, and, uh, and John Piper was responding to what N.T. Wright was saying with regard to justification by faith. And he was even emailing with N.T. Wright, making sure I understand what you're saying, everything else. And so John Piper writes a very lengthy book with, in response to what N.T. Wright was writing. And, uh, and the response from N.T. Wright was, well, he, didn't, he doesn't really get it. He didn't understand well, it's that same sort of thing. It's throwing up the quotation marks. That when I say justification, it, I don't mean justification in the way you mean justification. I mean it in a different way, but you never actually understand what that way is because I get to throw quotation marks around it. So when I say cow, you think cow, I think chair, but if you say, well, that's actually just a chair, not a cow, and I say, well, you don't really understand what I'm saying. You don't get it. Yeah. Right, well, and that's the point. Yeah, the point is that I, um, I have deconstructed things to, uh, to the point where I get to essentially establish what is real and what is not. Um, and, and that may or may not correspond to what you identify as being real. And even that, we've got to throw in quotation marks. Um, and so, what, how do we summarize all of that? Well, we summarize all of that, and this is where they're ultimately driving with that, is that there is no absolute meaning. In other words, all propositions are, um, all meaning propositions are, Valid. So, we think that's crazy, but that plays out every single day in our culture. And I'll give you some examples and you'll start to see exactly what I mean by that. Um, but first, let's think about it this way. Um, if you read a text without authorial intent, uh, the value in the genuine effort of an individual to contribute something that is of meaning, is completely lost. Exactly what Dan is saying. And so if I write you a letter, if I wrote a letter, let's say, to my wife, 
And in the letter, I said, dear wife, um, things have been good, but, um, you know, things have, uh, they've taken a turn for the worse. And uh, I don't drink your tea tomorrow morning because I put cyanide in it. But uh, um, I, you know, it's been a nice run. See you later. Um, If she read that and said, well, he said cyanide here. But this is his way of expressing his love to me. He actually is writing me a love letter. And in this love letter, he's saying he's using cyanide in his language as a term for love. He's made my tea with much love. And so I'm going to drink it. Well, okay. (laughs) The effects of that are detrimental, right? Uh, I can't just read a text and make it mean what I want it to mean. If so, then there is no way of communicating that is meaningful. Now, there's times I wish that was the case. When I get a letter from the IRS, I want to interpret that exactly the way I want to interpret it, right? It's very different from the way they want to interpret it, uh, and, and we all have those experiences, certainly. Um, but the idea, and again, this goes back to where we began a couple of months ago now, Remember when we said that Karl Marx wrote from each according to his ability to each according to his needs? We've now done that thing with language. He was trying to propagate an economic system, but Derrida is using that as deconstructionism. In other words, that an individual can use everything in society, including language, for their own desirable needs or what they identify as their needs. So the truth, quotation marks around truth, as it is disseminated from each according to his ability is now given to articulate and it can be put into use by each according to his need. Okay, so now I get to use language in the way that I think I need to use language versus the way that everyone has always said language is to be used. Now, let me give us some examples of where we see this playing out, and it's going to make a lot more sense. Um, This example really stands out to me, and it goes to the heart of a lot of the conversation that we have today. This is just back in, I say just, we were just talking about how um, we're almost to 2020, which for me means um, I'm, that's 20 years since I graduated high school, that whole deal. And some of you, you're like, 20 years? That was like 20 years ago. (laughs) But I read this and I think, okay, 2002, that wasn't very long ago. Well, it was 17 years ago. (laughs) But in in 2002, uh, there was a BBC war correspondent by the name of Martin Bell. And he uh, was writing and he was going to these conferences and he started talking about something he called journalism of attachment. And here's what he wrote. This is a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I think it's important as we think about this. Here's what he said. When I started out as a war reporter in the mid-1960s, I worked in the shadow of my distinguished predecessors and of a long and honorable BBC tradition of distance and detachment. I thought of it then as objective and necessary. I would, I would not call it bystanders journalism. I am no longer sure about the notion of objectivity, which seems to me now to be something of an illusion and a shibboleth. 
When I have reported from war zones or anywhere else, I have done so with all the fairness and impartiality I could muster and a scrupulous attention to the facts, but using my eyes and ears and mind and accumulated experience, which are surely the very essence of the subjective in the place of the dispassionate practices of the past, I now believe in what I call the journalism of attachment. So what, are you, what is he saying by that? What does he mean there? Yeah, exactly right. And if you read on, I won't continue with the quote, but he argues that that is the way that journalism should now be done. He's not, he's not, you know, we would hope, okay, you recognize you're doing that, now you're going to stop. He said, no, we're doing that, and we're going to continue doing that, and that's exactly how journalism should be done. Well, what's the problem with that? Is there a problem with that? Yeah, right. So now uh, when we assume we're turning to someone that is supposed to be reporting facts, uh, we don't know how those facts are being presented. Are they facts at all, right? Uh, what, what is the... Well, go ahead, Sean. Yeah, yeah, good. That's a good way to state it. Yeah, so we, when we read the news or turn on the news on TV or whatever else, what we are assuming we're getting is the facts of the story, right? Whatever it is, we're supposed to get the facts. And with that, uh, the assumption is that as a thinking individual, I can put the pieces together and come up with my own opinion as to what uh, to think about this. And as Sean said... In opposition to that, this journalism of attachment instead is, is storytelling. So I'm not a reporter anymore. I'm a storyteller. And this is exactly the way that a lot of journal, excuse me, journalists now think of themselves. And so what you get is reporters, journalists, whatever, that assume they have a moral responsibility given their place in society to, uh, to report things in such a way that you're going to hear and understand them from a perspective that they have assumed to be right and also to identify those things that they assume to be wrong. But they present it in such a way that this is not my opinion. These are now the facts of the matter. Yeah. Well, sure. Yeah, that's part of it. Things are certainly driven by ratings and reads and clicks and all that. There's no doubt about that. That's fake news, yes. Hashtag fake news. No doubt about it. Yep. Um, but this is, this is postmodern propaganda. That's what he's promoting. That facts of a story, that doesn't, that's not really what we're after. We... If, if I tell a story and, it, it, uh, and I just give you the bare facts, there, there's a chance that you're going to interpret those in such a way uh, that you're going to disagree with the way it makes me think and feel. And so I need to alter that so that you think and feel the right way. And so the way that plays out is if, uh, well, obvious, the, the obvious elephant in the room example 
is that if I want you to think a certain way about a certain politician, then I'm going to make sure that the way I present everything with regard to that person is going to be, uh, is going to be negative or positive or whatever it is that I want you to think. There's a way to tell a story, and I can tell, two people can tell the same story, and maybe the facts they give you are the same, but the way they tell those facts is really going to change the way that the listener, the reader, interprets all of that. Um, In like manner, there was in 2008 a paper given called The End of Journalism, Technology, Education, and Ethics. And it was at a conference with the title, this is the conference title, Three Cheers for Subjectivity, The Crumbling of the Seven Pillars of Journalistic Wisdom. I think wisdom did crumble. There's no doubt about that. And so here's what the paper began with. It said, The striving for objectivity is looking like an increasingly threadbare and arguably dangerous aspiration. Dangerous. He said, Objectivity is a dangerous search. He said, Objectivity, whether realized or aspired to, is a seductive concept. But like much that is seductive, it flatters to deceive. It must surely be self-evident that objectivity is and has always been a meaningless concept. This is because all journalists are human beings. That means they have a gender, an ethnicity, a family, a social background, a personal history, a set of prejudices that afflict us all. Yeah, Rob. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think uh, it's one that a lot, it, at least in the cultural sphere, a lot of people are trying to answer. I think um, part, of the, part of the problem that, I guess part of what makes that even more difficult in terms of trying to respond on a cultural level is that these conglomerates that are the disseminators of all of this are so huge. And so to topple the empire is, uh, is a very difficult thing. And so uh, thank God we have something like the Internet uh, where you can search out things uh, for yourself and do research. But then even there, you know, I don't know if you know this, but just because it's on the Internet doesn't mean it's true. I know. Sorry, yeah, Wikipedia, now that's a, that's a reliable source. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's a big question, Rob. I, I, um, you know, in terms of the church, I think there's answers and we'll get there, but in terms of society as a whole, I don't, I don't see any other way other than providing objective um, alternative sources which are out there. You know, I mean, something like the news media, their ratings are down below a million per show, which is crazy when you think of how many people are in this country um, versus, like, there's certain podcasts that have 100 million downloads every week. So people are searching for things in other ways, but, yeah. Yeah, and, and as you get on this road, the further you go, if you want to remain consistent, uh, it will. It'll sound... And, and really, no one's actually fooling themselves. At the end of the day, they have to look in the mirror and realize that much of what they're saying is, in fact, absurd. And as Russ is saying, it is because they're rejecting the truth they inherently know because the, 
because the God who created them has written that on their hearts. Sure, absolutely, Virginia. No, you're absolutely right. And that's, I mean, all, all of that's so important that we have a right understanding of, as Christians, we shouldn't be ashamed of saying words have meanings and those meanings are objective and we need to learn what those are. The Lord has taught us how to think, how to reason. He's given us the capacity, the ability to do so. And so the people in the world who should have the highest levels of education and the greatest desire to achieve those are Christian people. Because the Lord has given us the faculties in order to be able to think of, of facts and data and to, uh, to assemble all of that in a way that we're able to make sense of the world that we live in without having to go down these paths of absurdity. And so, as Christians, the more we learn about certain things, the more interest is gathered, and so we want to learn more and more instead of pausing all along the way and say, well, this may be true for you, but what about for the, um, what about for the Chinese feminist who lives in the Bronx? You know, what, what does this mean to her? Well, who cares? <laughs> it means the same thing to her as it means to me. It was, uh, it was a, a plane crash in Ethiopia this morning. That's why, why does that mean anything different to her than it does to me? Um, and, and so we start to ask those questions, and everything is filtered. I gave you the example before of Huckleberry Finn. Well, I'm going to read Huckleberry Finn through a particular lens. And so now that changes the meaning of what Mark Twain designed. Debbie and then Derek. That's right. Deconstruction is not even just about now or the future, but also reassessing the things of the past. That's absolutely true. So any conversations about um, having to look at things that have happened or the way they've happened in the past, um, we, need to, we need to reanalyze and rethink. And, um, and we start to think of ideas, what we call anachronistically. In other words, we judge ideas of the past based on modern ways of thinking. And uh, when you do that, you completely rewrite history. You're absolutely right. Derek. I'm just going to argue that nothing wrong with that. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, Satan was the first postmodernist without a doubt. Did God really say? Yeah, that, that's what he's asking. Is this really what he means by that? Um, Eve, why don't you give your interpretation? Don't you want to be like God? Uh, and again, he would have done this when he said God. <laughs> Don't you want to be like God? The little quotation marks. What's that? Well, you know. He was a snake. <laughs> now, this, uh, this same kind of deconstructionist rule-breaking <coughs> eventually made its way into the world of architecture. So if you've ever studied architecture at all, you've heard of postmodern architecture. Um, however, I'm not the first to point this out. I know it sounds brilliant. I'd love to take credit for it. But many cultural observers have acknowledged the fact that postmodernism can only be taken so far when you're building a structure. <laughs> right? I mean, what is postmodern architecture? Well, 
it's that building in Orlando that's never been used, if you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a structure that, you know, at the top of it, it has some funky design. Um, some postmodernists got really crazy, and on the inside, they had staircases that went up, and then they turned into a wall, and they never, like, opened into a door. Just meaningless nonsense. Exactly. Kaylee said. <laughs> um, Right, it's things like this. That's postmodern architecture. But if you want me to walk into the building and see the staircase that goes up and turns into a wall, something has to be objectively true about the foundation and about the walls in which the staircase is going to turn into, right? If, if I hire a postmodernist architect, I'm, I'm only going to want to take that so far because I want a stable foundation. I want walls that are going to stand. I want uh, a second floor that's not going to fall in on itself. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. Sure. And, and the whole idea being, well, there are these accepted norms that we've that we've said are true. So let's, let's question. Let's play with the boundaries all that we can. And so all of a sudden, something like, uh, if you're familiar with the artist M.C. Escher, I love his work. That's, it's really cool things that he's drawn. But that was in the abstract, and that was something for us to look at and be intrigued by and everything else. But now, let's see if we can make that sort of thing a reality. What can we make to look like that? And hence the ideas of staircases and everything else. And so, at the end of the day, the, the idea was that they want to be flippant or ironic or dismiss logic. But you can only go so far with that if you have any hope of passing a building inspection or getting a certificate of occupancy. It just doesn't work all the way through, and no one's found a way to do that. And I think I've said before, you're only going to go so far with your commitment if you need brain surgery, right? I don't want a postmodern brain surgeon. I just don't. I want someone who actually believes uh, that what they're going to do is backed by uh, f- true objective facts that if I cut here and sew here, I'm going to get the result that it is said to produce, I don't want a guy who is supposed to be my brain surgeon to start operating on my knee and wonder why my brain is the same as it was before the surgery. Right? We, we don't rely on this in its entirety. Uh, postmodern art also has its limitations before it is no longer understood by the average person to be an expression of art. I said last week, is a toilet in the bathroom of the art museum considered art if the plumber who installed it says so? Does that make it art just because I say it's art? Um, If not, why is that any different from uh, Marcel Duchamp? He had in 1917, he he called his piece of art fountain. And it was a urinal from a men's bathroom, but he just turned it upside down and hung it on the wall in the art studio, and people were flooding in the studio. You know, they, wanted, they all needed to see it. Um, this, is, this is art. Why is that any different from the urinal just around the corner in the men's room? Well, because the person who installed it said so. Essentially what that comes down to. Um, in the 1960s, 
uh, there was a man named uh, Piero Manzoni. Hold on to your seats. He canned, labeled, and exhibited, exhibited and sold 90 tins of his own excrement. And in 2002, a British museum purchased can number 68 for $40,000. I, 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 uh, I was going to make that comment. Now, amazing capitalist designs aside, <coughs> think about that. An art museum purchased a can of a person's bodily waste for $40,000 and put it on display. Huh? A very old can, exactly. Another one, Andreas Serrano, in 1980. He, seeing who's in here, um, he produced something he called Piss Christ. And it was a crucifix that was submerged in a jar of the artist's urine. In the 1990s, uh, in 1996, there was uh, something called the Holy Virgin Mary, and it was portraying uh, the, the Virgin Mary as surrounded by disembodied genitalia and chunks of dried feces. Now, all of this is going on in art museums. Now, unfortunately, for the postmodern artist, too much of a gross thing plays itself out over time. Um, it becomes, it no, it's no longer novel and so what was once breaking all of the rules loses its value of flippancy. And so now they have to move on to something else. And so the grotesque eventually becomes violent or whatever else. It, it, it takes on new shapes and forms. So when strange, sacrilegious, and grotesque forms of so-called art, um, when they're isolated to a postmodernist uh, art studio in their basement, the implications are very minimal. However, when art museums that are intended, they're, they're funded by taxpayers to display the greatest works of art displaying style and technique and precision, they're now spending $40,000 to purchase an old tin can of someone's feces. The gatekeepers of culture have been bypassed. And now all of us are being exposed to this. And so your, your child's uh, third grade field trip to the art museum becomes something very different than it was ever intended to be. No longer do they get to admire the works of Picasso and Monet and to understand things about brush strokes and types of, of media being utilized. Uh, now they're wondering, uh, why? Uh, why? <laughs> yeah, Quinn. Right, not the piece itself. That's a great point. And in fact, very recently, and I'll end with this, uh, there was a, there's a famous artist... I can't think of his name right now. What is it? Banksy. Banksy. Yes, that's right. Yes, he um, he had he made this piece of it was it was it was highly sought after. So he brought it to this art auction. It was framed out and everything else. They had it on the the wall, and a couple million dollars were spent on this in the auction. And as soon as the gavel hit and the auction closed. He had it designed to where the art would fall from the bottom of the frame through a paper shredder. And so to everyone's horror, they're watching this thing get shredded before their eyes that they just spent over $2 million on. But what's 
Even more hilarious about the whole thing is it malfunctioned, and so halfway through it stopped. So half of it's shredded and half of it's still in the frame. But wouldn't you know it, it's now worth even more. So, that is exactly what you're talking about. For him, it was more about, it was a protest of the way art has been turned into this capitalistic venture. Well, joke's on him. Um, it's, it's very valuable now. So uh, anyway, we'll, we'll pick up there next week. Uh, good, thoughtful discussion. And I, I think a lot of this, especially with, in terms of visual art and all of that kind of thing, this really plays into what we need to think about uh, in the Christian worldview. So let's pray together. Father, thank you again for our time together, for the discussion we've been able to have, for the ways we've been able to think about uh, all these various things. And Lord, we pray uh, that you would, uh, you would protect us, uh, that you would keep us from venturing off into the absurd, uh, that we not hear the lies of the evil one, the one who asked, did God really say? May we turn to your word as an objective standard of truth. May we hold to that truth tenaciously. May we understand it as you intend for us to understand it. And may we apply it in a way that brings glory to you, that strengthens your church and brings holiness into our lives. And we pray you would do all of this for your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.